Hello, podcasters, and welcome to episode 25 of our Banking Litigation podcast. I'm Kerry Morgan, a professional support consultant in our banking litigation team. And today I'll be stepping into the shoes of John Corrie and taking on the role of your podcast host. As promised in our recent monthly update podcast, today's episode is one of our special edition podcasts in which we will be delving into a key risk area for financial institutions handling client payments, the quince care duty of care. If there is such a thing as a trending cause of action, then this is it in banking litigation. Joining me are some familiar faces or voices to our podcast, Mark Tanner and Scott Warren. Hello to you both. Hi, Gary. Thank you. Hi, podcasters. And a special hello to the Quince Care Fanatics that Kerry mentioned on our previous episodes, who have no doubt been eagerly awaiting for this uh, long-anticipated episode. Thanks, Kerry. Hello, podcasters as well from me. And also hello to Annabelle, as John says, who is behind the glass, who's making all the podcast magic happen. And with those introductions done, I will kick us off uh, today by going back to basics to provide our listeners with a quick overview of the duty, a Quince Care 101, before handing over to our guest speakers who are going to dig a bit deeper into the details. In particular, Mark will be looking at the scope of the duty, including briefly what the duty entails and who it's owed to and when it can arise. And then Scott will be looking at potential defences for financial institutions. I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this topic as the Quince Care Duty has become uh, somewhat of a regular feature on our monthly update podcast. But for those who aren't so well acquainted, I think the best way to start is to place the duty in context. The Quince Care duty arises in the context of a financial institution receiving and processing client payments. So here, the primary duty under the bank's mandate is to comply with its customer's instructions, i.e. the customer is always right and the bank must do as the customer instructs it to do with the customer's money. So if the customer instructs the bank to execute a certain transaction, so for example, to make a certain payment, then that is what it must do. And if the bank does not do so, then it risks acting in breach of its mandate and risks the customer complaining that the bank has breached its mandate and requesting appropriate compensation. Anything which erodes this standard position is unusual, save for where there is a suspicion of money laundering or other financial crime. For example, where there's a suspicious activity report, and that's referred to the National Crime Agency and payment instructions are not processed while awaiting consent. But we're not going to cover the AML aspects of processing client payments in this podcast. Here, we're just looking at the civil litigation side. So let's consider a fictional scenario. Imagine that a payment mandate has been received by a bank on a corporate customer's account. This mandate has been made by an authorised signatory of the customer, say, for example, the CFO of a small, medium-sized company. However, the circumstances surrounding the transaction are such that red flags have been raised to the bank, which suggests that this is an attempt by said signatory to fraudulently squirrel money away from the customer company. Must our fictional bank still adhere to its principal duty and process the transaction without question, despite these clear indications that the signatory is acting in their own interests and to the detriment of the company? 
This is where the quince care duty comes into play as one of the few erosions to this standard position, as I said, aside from AML issues. And in a nutshell, the duty is imposed on the bank or deposit holding financial institution to refrain from processing the payment mandate made by the authorised signatory of its customer if and for as long as it is put on inquiry, meaning that it has reasonable grounds for believing that the order is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of its customer. And pausing there for a second, Kerry, how does a bank know if there are reasonable grounds for such a belief? Well, this is an objective test to be judged against the standard of an ordinary prudent banker, meaning that if an ordinary prudent banker would not have been put on inquiry, that means there would not have been reasonable grounds and there would be no quince care duty. But that may be jumping ahead just a little bit. So, Putting this all together in summary, the customer would have a potential claim for breach of the quince care duty of care if the bank executes the transaction when it's on notice of the potential fraud or suspicious activity, or when it should have been on notice if it was acting according to the standard of an ordinary prudent banker. That was very succinct, thanks Kerry. Um, And could you let us know how exactly the quince care duty sits in relation to the principal duty that you mentioned, i.e. the duty to comply with the customer's instructions? I'm glad you asked that, Mark. The the Quince Care duty is both ancillary and subject to the bank's principal duty. So just recently, the High Court in Philip and Barclays confirmed this point. The court resisted the claimant's attempts to elevate the duty to a position where it ceased to be subordinate. The court said that such an outcome should be avoided as it would, quote, involve the triumph of unduly onerous and commercially unrealistic policing obligations over the bank's basic obligation to act upon its customers' instructions. So in essence, it's not a duty to second guess client instructions and not a duty to become private investigators suspicious of all transactions being made, but an overall duty to act with reasonable care, skill and diligence when processing these transactions. Gary, shall we explain why the term quince care is used? Certainly, Scott. So to put it simply, the duty was first formulated in Barclays Bank and Quince Care, hence the title. That's actually a High Court decision from 1992, although the bank was found not liable in that case. Interestingly, there's only been one case in which the duty was found to have been successfully owed and breached, and that case is Singularis in Daiwa, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court in 2019. Prior to this, the Quince Care duty had received very little judicial attention. Um, In Singularis, which we discussed in detail way back in episode 13 of our monthly update update podcast, uh, the High Court found that the bank had been put on inquiry that the order was an attempt to misappropriate funds, but that it had processed the payment requested anyway, acting in breach of its quince care duty. While Singularis reached the Supreme Court, the appeal centred upon whether the defence of illegality could defeat the claim and did not consider breach. So in reality, the case doesn't offer great insight into the duty itself. We'll turn to it again later in this podcast, as it's such a key authority in this area, in particular when discussing potential defences. 
You're really keeping our listeners in suspense here, Gary. I bet they're wondering why this topic warrants an entire podcast episode, despite its stated dormancy. Well, the duty really did lie effectively dormant for a long time. Uh, However, the past few years have witnessed a proliferation of judgments handed down in quick succession since Singularis. I guess we could say the Quincecare volcano has well and truly erupted. And it's these cases which have put flesh on the bones of the duty as the court has grappled with its parameters. Whilst these judgments are beneficial from the perspective of financial institutions in that they provide guidance as to the risks stemming from the processing of client payments, and there's not yet been a judgment other than Singularis where it's been held that the duty was breached, the recent cases are somewhat problematic in that they tend to expand the duty uh, and its scope, increasing the bank's corresponding obligations. And for that reason, we're highlighting this as a key risk area for financial institutions processing client payments, especially those which have inadequate safeguards or processes governing payment processing, which may be in need of review. And Kerry, why do you think this sudden uptick has occurred? Well, Scott, I think this is a culmination of years of increased regulation, raising the expectation of financial institutions to identify potentially fraudulent activity. Banks are unfortunately used by criminals to move money around the financial system. And there's been significant regulatory focus on what role banks can play in helping to prevent this while still acting quickly for the 99.9% of customers who want to be able to make payments and legitimate transfers quickly. Public policy and this expectation in the regulatory arena has been carried over into the types of civil claims coming through the courts. And banks are expected to do more than simply carry out their customers' instructions blindly. So I'm now going to hand over to our guest speakers who will shed some light on the finer details. I believe Mark is going to give us a quick crash course on the scope of the duty before passing over to Scott, who will walk us through some of the defences tried and tested by defendant financial institutions. But before I do, I should probably mention that our blog posts covering the cases mentioned in this episode will be linked in the show notes below. Uh, if you like more detail on any of these cases mentioned or just a quick recap, then I suggest you head on over to those. But without further ado, I will hand over to you, Mark. Thanks, Gary. Um, in terms of the scope of the duty, I'll start off by looking at when the duty is likely to arise. And the key case here, as you mentioned, is obviously Singularis. Uh, given that this is the only authority we have in which the duty was found to be owed uh, and to have been breached. Uh, I will then move on to look at what the bank is expected to do, where the red flag has been raised and where it's on notice that the authorised signatory may be trying to perpetrate a fraud. So in Singularis, the High Court gave a rather stinging judgment in which Mrs Justice Rose, Rose said, And I quote, any reasonable banker would have realised that there were many obvious, even glaring signs that the authorised signatory was perpetrating a fraud. And she went on to say the authorised signatory was clearly using the funds for his own purposes. So, Mark, from that intro, it sounds like the facts in Singularis are pretty extreme. Well, Scott, the courts certainly seem to think so, although there's been some academic debate on that point. I will give you a brief background to the case so you can decide. In Singularis, the the bank held sums on deposit for Singularis Holdings Limited. This was the personal investment company set up to manage the personal assets of Mr. Alcinea. Mr. Alcinea was an authorised signatory on the account, 
And he was also the sole shareholder, a director, the chairman, president and treasurer of Singularis. So in one sense, this is an extreme case because of the degree of control Mr. Alcinair had over the company. However, that said, Mr. Alcinair was not the sole director and there were six other directors who were all reputable people. So on with the story, Mr. Alcinair instructed the bank to make payments out of Singularity's account and the bank approved and completed those transfers. Yeah, notwithstanding those glaring signs of fraud that Mrs. Justice Rose mentioned. Precisely. Mr. Alcinaya then misappropriated the money to the tune of 200 million US dollars and Singularis went into liquidation and the joint official liquidator of the company brought a claim against the bank, which included a claim for breach of the Quince Care duty. So we can look to Singularis for some advice as to when a bank will be put on inquiry that there are reasonable grounds for believing that an order is an attempt to misappropriate the funds of its customer. In other words, what red flags did the court highlight in Singularis? Well, first of all, the court pointed to the fact that the bank's senior management were aware of the dire financial situation of both Mr. Alcinaya and the Saudi Arabian conglomerate that he owned, the Saad Group. Importantly, the bank had this knowledge at the time the payments were processed. It was public knowledge, and the bank knew, that Mr. Alcinaya's assets were frozen by the Saudi authorities. The bank's head of compliance emailed a number of employees at the bank involved in the account, reminding them to exercise care and caution in connection with any activity on Singularity's accounts in light of its well-publicised problems. Secondly, the bank clearly had concerns about the financial health of its customer and went to significant lengths to protect the bank's own interests, including developing a plan to close down the relationship without client consent. So if a bank invests management time and effort taking steps to protect itself, this could be evidence of a red flag. In addition to the knowledge of the poor financial position of the customer which the bank had, the bank was also aware that Singularis had substantial creditors with an interest in the money held in the company's account. And they were also aware that other banks were selling off the collateral they held for Singularis. Next, Mr. Alcinaya and individuals within the Saad group had exhibited suspicious behaviour, such as slamming down the phone when the bank initially refused to make payments. Finally, the CEO and vice chairman of the bank raised concerns that the reasons given for certain payments, which were listed as hospital expenses, were a front or cover, rather than a genuine obligation of Singularis. And taking a step back, Mark, it seems like the red flags and the bank's failures in Singularis were, in many respects, quite extreme too. But you did mention that there had been some diverging opinion on this point. Yes, there has. Well, there's one line of thought that these purportedly glaring signs of fraud were not particularly significant in the grand scheme of things for a bank, a customer in financial difficulties with known creditors, for example. It all comes back to the tension we mentioned previously between, on the one hand, the growing expectation of banks to undertake some sort of monitoring role, and on the other, the bank's primary duty to execute the customer's payment mandate swiftly. This tension was recognised in the High Court's judgment. Mrs Justice Rose said that the Quintscare duty does not require a bank to become paranoid about the honesty of those it does business with in normal circumstances. However, equally, a bank cannot accept at face value whatever strange documents and implausible explanations are proffered by the offices of a company which is facing serious financial difficulties. But there are differing views as to where this balance should be struck, creating different perspectives as to what it is that banks should be doing in response to potentially suspicious situations. 
I think the other thing to remember is that Daiwa, the defendant bank in Singularis, is an investment bank and brokerage company. It's not a licensed deposit taker and it was not operating an ordinary bank account for Singularis. So I think the type of bank and the type of bank account must surely be factored in when considering whether a red flag has been raised and the quince care duty is owed, do you think? Definitely, definitely. I think, Kerry, that's, that's, that's true. The bank was not administering a large number of bank accounts or dealing with lots of payments instructions. So it was not pra- impractical uh, to expect Daiwa, in this case, to look carefully at the instructions that were given for payments out of that particular account. In fact, the court described Singularis as an unusual case because many of the factors that persuaded the court in other cases, including Quince Care itself, as to why it would be impractical to impose a heavy, too heavy a duty on the, a bank did not apply in the Singularis case. And of course, for many banks, even for high value payment transfers, the process will be automated. So while it's always quite an unhelpful conclusion to reach, whether or not the quince care duty arises will very much depend on the facts of each case. But as we have more cases reaching trial, we should gradually have more guidance from the court as to what is likely to be regarded as a red flag in the context of deposit accounts at larger financial institutions, and in particular for automated payments. That's all I was going to propose to say on when when the duty arises, so I'll move on to what the bank must do once it has been put on inquiry. And one of the most important recent cases on the ambit of the Quince Care duty was the Court of Appeals decision in JPM versus Nigeria. The court in that judgment stated that in most cases, the Quince Care duty will require something more from the bank than simply pausing and refusing to comply with the payment instruction. However, rather unhelpfully, the court offered very little practical guidance as to what something more actually meant or referred to. The Court of Appeal said that the trial judge in that particular case would be in a better position to determine what the bank should have done after the alleged red flag was raised. The court consciously avoided identifying factors which might assist in the trial judge's determination and instead said that in each case this will be dependent on the specific facts. That old chestnut again. Are there any key takeaways that you can draw out for us, Mark? I'll do my best, Scott. Um, Firstly, what the JPM Nigeria case tells us is that the quince care duty comprises both a negative duty to refrain from making payments but also a positive duty on the bank to proactively do something more. Secondly, this positive duty to do something more is not limited to making reasonable inquiries. Both of these points go to Kerry's overarching comments earlier about banks being obliged to do more to assist the fight against financial crime. My final point concerns the relative importance of these duties. In contrast to the High Court, the Court of Appeal did not find it useful to describe either aspects of the quince care duty i.e. the negative or the positive duty on the bank, as being core or separate or subsidiary or additional. Appreciating it's not your fault, Mark, that the guidance from the courts is a little skeletal to say the least. Do we have any guidance as to what the positive duty to do something more might require? Yes, I know what you mean, and uh, I would give more detail if I could. Um, As I said, the Court of Appeal in the JPM Nigeria case said that this will be a matter for trial, so we don't have anything directly from the court. And this point has not yet been considered in any of the other quince care duty cases. I think in practice, parties may argue that discharging the duty would require the bank to check with another authorised signatory or signatories of the customer. Perhaps check with senior office holders who are not the account signatories of the customer. They might make investigations in relation to the account or the account holder to which the payment is to be made. 
or they might carry out independent checks in relation to the account holder and its signatories. These duties could also be argued even to extend to taking local law advice about such matters as the constitution and governance of the account holder, and perhaps even the legal or political framework in which it operates. Albeit, I think banks would argue, quite understandably, I think, that many of these actions would really set a high bar and perhaps, perhaps the burden on them would be too high. Well, thank you for Mark. I, I think this takes us back to the tension between the Quince Care duty and the primary duty to process the customer's mandate. I, I really wish the court would give us something more in the way of guidance as to what this positive duty entails. Um, but on to your second point on scope. Thanks, Gary. Yes, my next point um, was going to cover to whom the Quince Care duty is owed. And this was a point of recent dispute in the High Court uh, in Phillips versus Barclays, a case which our podcasters might recall hearing about in our most recent monthly update podcast, and one on which I understand, Scott, uh, you've got some personal first-hand knowledge of. That's right, Mark. Yes, it was a very interesting matter to be involved with. Um, the claimants essentially invited the court to extend the scope of the Quince Care duty beyond its established boundaries and to go from cases of uh, attempted misappropriation by an agent of the customer, i.e. the CFO of a small to medium-sized company, to the context of an authorised push payment fraud, where the account holder herself, i.e. for an individual personal account, gave authorisation for the payments to be made, meaning there was no agent involved and the signatory was the customer. She wasn't just signing on behalf of the customer. In a nutshell, the court confirmed that the current scope of the Quince Care duty is not owed to individuals, but is limited to protecting corporate customers or unincorporated associations, such as partnerships, i.e. where the instructions to the bank have been given by a trusted agent of that customer who it turns out weren't actually that trustworthy. There has been a trend in other Quince Care judgments to date of broadening the scope of the duty. However, in this case, the court effectively limited the beneficiaries of the duty, which should help to reduce the risk profile for banks. Thanks, Scott. Uh, in interestingly, Mark pinged me an email this morning with a post from our Asia Disputes blog covering a recent decision by the Hong Kong court on a very similar point. Yes, it was rather good timing for this, uh, this podcast, and it goes to show the benefits of signing up for alerts from the global blogs. It's interesting to track the evolution of the Quince Care duty in other jurisdictions, and in Hong Kong, the court has previously recognised the Quince Care duty with a similar scope to the English cases. But in this recent decision, the Hong Kong court was asked to extend the duty to protect an individual customer who had directly instructed her bank to make various transfers, similar to the Philip versus Barclays scenario, which Scott just mentioned. Like the UK courts, the Hong Kong court refused to broaden the duty in this way. For anyone who's interested in a bit more detail on this, the case name is Luk Wing Yan versus CMB Wing Lung Bank, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Oh, very good pronunciation there, Mark, um, and a good plug for the blogs there. Thank you. Um, and did you want to explain to our listeners how this position, so the idea that the duty is not owed to individuals, can be reconciled with the judgment in Hamlin and World First and Moorland? Uh, and if some of our podcasters might recall that the court in that case found that two individuals did have standing to bring a quince care claim and might wonder how that came about. Yes, sure. So the distinction 
here is that the handling claim was brought by the relevant account holder, which was a shell company, with the proceedings being driven by the victims of fraud as representative proceedings. It's, it's all a bit confusing, but a brief explanation of the facts will hopefully help to provide some clarity. The case concerned two defendants. The first was a payment services provider, World First, and the second was World First's customer, a shell company called Moorwand. Moorwand had no directors and was essentially a shell company hijacked by fraudulent individuals and used to persuade investors to transfer money into its accounts. Those monies were then transferred out, apparently on instruction from Moorwand, the shell company. It was held that the shell company Moorwand was a trustee of the claimant's funds and that Moorwand itself qualified as the victim of the fraud. The Quince Care duty is owed to the company, not to those in control of it, and its purpose is to protect the legally distinct entity, which in this case was Moorwand, the shell company. The purpose is also to protect against the misappropriation of the company's, i.e. Moorwand's, assets. And in these circumstances, the claimants were able to bring representative proceedings as a beneficiary where the shell company had committed a breach of trust. This requirement was found satisfied, at least to the level of realistic argument. I should note that this was an application by World First for strikeout or reverse summary judgment. Moorwand, the trustee, was in insolvent liquidation, and there was no dispute that it had been hijacked by fraudulent individuals and used as the means by which a fraud was carried into effect. This can be contrasted against the position in Phillips versus Barclays, where, as Scott mentioned, the victim herself was an individual who instructed the bank to make the payment. And later, it was the same individual who brought the claim against the bank. Thanks, Mark. And to round off this hat trick on scope. I just want to make a brief note of, of the different contexts in which the duty has been found to arise. Quintcare itself considered the duty in the context of a corporate company current account, but it has since been extended to depository accounts in JPM versus Nigeria, investment banks, as in Singularis, and in the context of a payment services provider in Hamlin versus World First and Moorwand, which I just mentioned. This list is by no means determinative, given that each of these have been confirmed on a piecemeal basis, as and when the claim has reached court. Thank you, Mark. It will be apparent to our podcasters that scope of the duty has been moulded by these recent judgments. And given this growing tendency to expand and or for claimants to have a go at seeking to expand what might be encompassed within the Quince Care duty, it may be prudent for financial institutions to review safeguards governing payment processing and also to review the protocols in place for what steps must be taken in the event that a red flag is raised. And those steps should not be limited to refraining from making the payment, but also obviously extend to positive steps of investigation and the record keeping of those steps, given what we've been told by the court to date. But now I'm going to hand over to Scott, who is going to take us through some of the potential tools in the armoury of banks for defending these claims. Thank you very much, Kerry. Yeah, so on to potential defences. Of course, most banks will seek to defend quince care cases on the basis that the duty either does not arise in the first place or that it has been satisfied. But thinking more to standalone defences, one shield that a bank has attempted to raise is the defence of illegality. Now, Scott, while I'm sure that many of our listeners will be familiar with this concept, a snapshot summary might prove useful, do you think? Of course. Yes. So to put it simply, an illegality defence will operate in an appropriate case to prevent a claimant from pursuing a civil claim if the claim arises in connection with some illegal act on behalf of the claimant. 
The question of whether a defendant bank could rely on this defence to defeat a Quince Care duty claim was a point for determination by the Supreme Court in Singularis. In this case, the illegality relied on was provision of documents by the authorised signatory, Mr. Alcinea, which he knew to be false, and the corresponding breach of his fiduciary duty towards the account holder, the company Singularis. The bank argued that Mr. Alcinea's illegal act could be attributed to the company and that they therefore acted as a defence to the breach of the Quince Care duty. So, Two separate issues arose out of this argument. The first, whether the bank could rely upon the illegality defence in response to a Quince Care duty claim, and if so, the second, whether the illegal acts of Mr. Alcinea, the individual, could be attributed to the company Singularis. First, considering illegality, the Supreme Court found in a categorical judgment that the bank did not meet the three-stage test for a successful illegality defence laid down in Patel and Mirza. The most important element of that test to highlight in this context relates to public policy. The Supreme Court placed particular emphasis on the role that financial institutions play in reducing and uncovering financial crime and money laundering. It therefore followed that if a regulated entity could escape from the consequences of failing to identify and prevent financial crime by casting on the customer the illegal conduct of its employees, then that public policy would be undermined. And Scott, we mentioned this earlier on about how the courts and regulators are keen to oblige banks to play a greater role and to invest greater resources into fighting financial crime. And I guess the same logic, i.e. an individual's illegal acts can't be attributed to the company, would be likely to apply in most quince care claims. I think that's right, Mark. Whilst there will be a fact-specific uh, point in each given case, in quince care claims, it will nearly always be the case that there's been illegal activity, and usually indirectly on the part of the customer, albeit by the customer's agent. Therefore, allowing a defence of illegality would effectively bar any claims and eliminate the doctrine altogether. And as for the question of attribution? This argument also failed. In essence, the bank argued that Singularis was effectively a one-man company, with Mr Alcinea as its controlling mind and will. And because of this, his fraud should be attributed to Singularis. In support of this argument, the bank relied on the widely criticised House of Lords' decision in Stone and Rolls which has effectively been treated as establishing a rule of law that the dishonesty of the directing mind and will of a company can be attributed to the company if it is in a one-man company context, regardless of the context and purpose of the attribution. Rejecting the argument, the Supreme Court stated that there is no principle of law to that effect. I believe the court said something along the lines of stone and rolls having been laid to rest. It did, Kerry. The court confirmed that whether knowledge of a fraudulent director can be attributed to the company is always to be found in consideration of the context and the purpose for which the attribution is relevant. The fact that the relevant company is a one-man company does not mean that these considerations can be avoided. On the facts of Singularis, the context of the attribution was the bank's breach of its Quinscare duty. The purpose of Quincecare was to protect a company such as Singularis against the fraudulent act of its trusted agent, even if that trusted agent was a sole director and shareholder. The court would want the company's assets to be protected for the purposes of innocent third-party creditors. 
And in those circumstances, Mr. Alcinea's fraud could not be attributed to Singularis. Similar to the first question, if the court had held otherwise, the quince care duty would effectively cease to exist, and we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Oh, that would be a shame, Scott. Um, I see. And so do you have any other examples of potential defences for us? Of course I do. Another route which may be considered by financial institutions processing payments is the inclusion of contractual words to exclude the quince care duty of care. The quince care duty arises either as an implied term in the contracts between a bank and its customer or as a tortious duty. The Court of Appeal in JPN in Nigeria endorsed the view that it is possible for a bank and its client to exclude the quince care duty. However, whilst this might on its face sound promising, in practice, there are a fair few caveats to the utility of this option. Firstly, any exclusion clause will be subject to the statutory restrictions such as reasonableness in UCTA. Both the High Court and Court of Appeal also emphasise that the wording of any exclusion clause would have to be sufficiently clear in that it must make clear that the bank should be entitled to pay out on instruction of the authorised signatory, even if it suspects the payment is in furtherance of a fraud, which that signatory is seeking to perpetrate on that client. But Scott, that doesn't exactly seem commercially palatable. It doesn't, does it? So regardless, in light of this, financial institutions may wish to consider reviewing the standard form wording of client accounts agreements. And I believe that you have one final point for us, Scott. I do indeed, Kerry. Before we depart, I will quickly raise a point on limitation. Whilst not a defence in the strictest sense, in Robertson RBS, the court granted the defendant bank's application for reverse summary judgment on the basis that the claims, which included a quintscare claim, were time barred under the Limitation Act 1980. So I won't go into detail on this, but the case confirmed that the court will, in appropriate cases, take a robust approach in dismissing such claims which on the facts are clearly time barred, especially where the necessary facts required to plead a prima facie case of breach were within the claimant's knowledge at an earlier date than contended. So limitation could be another potential avenue for banks to explore in defence of these claims. Thank you, Scott. Good to round off this special edition with a focus on potential defences to this tricky duty. Now, I'm conscious that we haven't had time to cover every single decision in this area. Just a few days ago, the Court of Appeal handed down its judgment in another Quince Care duty case, Stanford International Bank and HSBC. In that case, looking at the duty in the context of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, that one's a bit more niche, so our keen podcasters should keep an eye or an ear out uh, for our blog post or uh, next monthly update podcast. But as we said at the beginning, this continues to be a key risk area for banks, both in the UK and other jurisdictions, as the recent decision of the Hong Kong court demonstrates. And I know our colleagues and clients across the globe are monitoring developments in the UK closely. So I do hope that this overview has been useful to you all. Uh, but for now, we just have time to say goodbye and thank you all very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>